You're a founder or an entrepreneur. You want to take your company value to 300 million, we gon' show you how to do it. We got the roadmap, the aspirations. We'll give you a game plan and strategies. This is controlling your company's destiny today by tuning in to Private Capital Mastery. Yeah, yeah. Let's start the show. Welcome to Private Capital Mastery, the podcast where we delve into the art and science of being an entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Franco, and I'm here to guide you through the complex landscape of private capital, offering insights from advisors who have specialized expertise in the art of private capital. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the intricacies of preparing companies for transactions and helping them navigate through distressing times. It's a roller coaster ride in the world of capital, and being well prepared can make all the difference. Joining us today is a distinguished guest who has not only witnessed, but has had, had his hand in orchestrating success stories. Mr. George Blanco. George, thank you for being here with us. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you here talking about the work that you've done. Why don't you give a little bit of background on your, your firm, mm -hmm. the work that you do, and and, and really how you, you know, wh when are you called in and, and, and then Absolutely. parachuted in, really, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, our firm is uh, it's EMA Group or Enterprise Management Advisors. And what we focus on is we're a financially oriented or operationally oriented financial advisory firm. So most of our clients have operational issues. Yeah. And so a lot of what we're focused on is how do we fix, help fix the business, document it, and then prepare it frequently for a transaction, either for a refinancing, restructuring of debt, or even a sale process. Mm -hmm. um, my background is I was a partner at Coopers and Lybron uh, or PricewaterhouseCoopers subsequently on the consulting side and then subsequently yeah. uh, regional consulting partner for uh, BDO. Mm. So I've been involved from uh, very large companies, Fortune 500 companies, everything from Haagen-Dazs and Georgia Beverly Hills to a lot of brand names over the years. Um, and then at BDO it was really more of a middle market firm. Yeah. Um, but the intent of, of what we're trying to do with, uh, with uh, EMA Group is really um, it's companies of various sizes, but it's really taking a more active role with companies. Mm -hmm. When you're with big firms, you're really limited on what you're able to do. Mm -hmm. And for us, we, we when we get involved with the companies, we're really working shoulder to shoulder with uh, with management. Yeah. Um, our team is comprised of guys that have 30 plus years experience. So uh, I've known a lot of these folks for a very long time, some that I've worked with and uh, over the years. And it ranges from uh, people with uh, CFO backgrounds mm -hmm. with uh, with very good quality uh, credentials to uh, people that have been involved in transaction. I have a former partner of a mezzanine fund, so he really knows how to get deals done. And one of our guys, uh, I've worked with him for the last 20 years, and he has a manufacturing background. So we implement lean when we can. So it's really taking a comprehensive look at businesses and mm -hmm. what it really takes to, to drive value. Yeah. And we've had the opportunity to work with one another on a project. And, you know, I've seen your work firsthand in the level of detail that you're able to right. bring to found, founders and entrepreneurs is is important because in some instances and cases these these entrepreneurs they are familiar with their business they know how to make the measurements inside their business and they know how to you know to communicate that internally from a standpoint of improvement or are we on track or we off track but as you and I both know an underwriting process when it comes to lending or a due diligence process when it comes to outside investors, right. they're making different measurements than what a, t a typical founder or CEO are making in their own business. Right. What are some of the examples in, 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 in real life case studies that you've dealt with mm -hmm. where you were parachuted into an, a company 
that needed to either be, you mentioned they are sometimes distressed or sometimes there's a turnaround or sometimes they're positioning themselves for a sale. Mm -hmm. You have an approach to how you do that and, and, and what does that look like? Yeah, and you know, the, point, the key point you, you highlighted is that is the detail, getting yeah. into the detail because that's, that's, that's the only magic sauce, secret <laughs> sauce that we have is yeah. doing that. Um, and what happens is it, it ranges. What, for a lot of companies is that, and for banks, and the underwriting standards are changing for a lot of the lenders, is that you have an annual audit, and they would rely on that annual audit, and, and that was all they were looking for, right? And so when these loans got booked frequently, the companies were growing, they're very profitable, and so on. Now when something happens and they have profitability issues and they're potentially breaching a covenant, now uh, there's a lot more uh, kind of digging into the detail, right? It's no longer the, the uh, business development guy who is managing the relationship. It's now the portfolio guy or the credit guy who now wants to dig deep into what happened to the business. Why is profitability off directionally? Where is it going? Um, is there a risk of, of breaching covenants? Um, and then how is it going to get fixed? And we've seen, uh, I've seen a broad range of things over the years and, and everything from uh, crazy to the sublime. And, and, and on the sublime end, and starting with that is, going into a company where there's an entrepreneur and he had his act together and I was really surprised and impressed. And then I dug into the detail with him and, he's, and I, I said, what, what, so how, how did you get here to have all the detail I was looking for? So it made the diligence easy. And he said, well, I've been through the transaction process three times and I couldn't close. Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, he, he kind of got religion, so to speak, wow. and realized here's all the things I needed to have, you know, the detailed yeah. payroll information, organization yeah. charts, support for how I, I drive profitability, how I manage the business, all these sorts of, you know, yeah. uh, documentation. Right. And it, you know, it just really hit me at that point that it, it's not always that easy to get a deal done. Yeah. And, and if you uh, have a good advisor um, mm -hmm. and they guide you and you follow their advice and do what you're supposed to do, it makes the transaction a lot easier. Yeah. But I think part of the craziness that I've seen, and this is a, kind of a dual example, is the company was profitable, but wasn't nearly as profitable as it could have been. Mm -hmm. And it was in the logistics industry. And it was doing about 100 million a year in revenue. And it had gone through already a couple of deals that had broken down for various reasons, right? And it wasn't clear why, but as I dug into the details and started doing the diligence, I started finding stuff like, oh. And it was two guys that owned the business and had grown it, right? But they were buying jewelry. They were had, you know, mm -hmm. there were limos on there. And there was a lot of stuff that I was questioning, what, what does that have to do with the core <laughs> business, right? And so when I started taking this out, I said, well, the, the profitability is going to be better. And it really will match. If we make these kinds of adjustments, it'll match better to what you think it should be from a profit standpoint. Yeah. Right? But we're going to have to clean up the financial records. A lot of the stuff was recorded improperly into the wrong buckets, that sort of thing. And these things that were purchased as gifts, they can't be written off as part of the business. So you can have a tax impact on some of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of cleanup needed to be done. We brought in a third party so we could actually do the diligence. And that's kind of a regular thing that happens that mm -hmm. when we get involved, as soon as we see the initial ish set of issues, whether it's a transaction or if it's a, even a, from a restructuring standpoint, is that the books and records frequently aren't up to the level they need to be in Correct. terms of the detail. Yeah. And, and in this situation, we brought in a third party that helped clean up the books. And the valuation perhaps wasn't as, as good as they wanted. Okay. But by being able to build the bridge and explain what was causing kind of where they were from a profitability standpoint, from where the industry is and where mm -hmm. they could be, we were able to kind of lay out those layers, right? And so as mm -hmm. part of the transaction and the deal process, the investment banker and the private equity firm were able to say, okay, look, um, we see where this is going with, you know, you've done this with George and put together this pro forma. 
you know, we can only uh, uh, kind of evaluate at a certain level. But mm -hmm. if you want to stay in the deal, you know, and partner with us, then uh, you'll get another bite at the apple. Correct. So to demonstrate, as you demonstrate the ability to basically get to that profitability level, right? Yeah. yeah. So it really, it really made a big difference. But when you're dealing with a lot of privately held companies and, and they really hadn't thought too much about what they needed to do to get to a transaction, it's amazing what people run through businesses. Right? It is, it is. And from from a, from a <laughs> discretionary expense standpoint. Yeah, yeah. And, and to, yeah. to the point that you were making earlier, you're going in, you're identifying those discretionary expenses. At times they're, you know, that we call them, you know, right. owner perks and benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, their, their goal and target is to minimize their tax liability. And mm -hmm. you do that by creating expenses within the company. Yep. But when it comes time to valuation, it's our time to seek those sorts of discretionary expenses right. Can we classify them as one-time expenses? Can we classify them as a personal perk and or benefit? Mm -hmm. And it's counterintuitive for an entrepreneur because they look at that and they say, well, George, you're going to reclassify these expense. It's going to be a, a 20 to 35% tax hit, right? right? And, and they just can't get over that sometimes. But when mm -hmm. you start to help them understand, well, listen, that tax hit is 30, you know, 20 to 35%, let's say, hypothetically, mm -hmm. but if it's a 400% return or 500% return in term, in the form of a multiple on EBITDA, the ROI is there. You just have to show them because otherwise, you know, the thinking yep. is just to, you know, minimize the tax. Well, that, that, that's, that's that what you just explained is one of the magical things I think for people to understand when they're selling their business mm -hmm. is that those adjustments in terms of profitability and, yeah. and, and it's a, there's a multiplier effect, yeah. right? So yeah. if you're willing to make the changes, and that's often what I have with in a turnaround situation with family health businesses. Okay. They've really never looked at valuation and how to affect valuation in their business, yeah. right? They know that they've got some people on payroll that are marginally, you know, uh, productive. Correct. Um, We've you know, seen that. Yeah and, yeah, and they didn't push maybe the edge on, you know, operational efficiencies because... Yes. You know, they didn't have to, right? They, mm -hmm. they made enough money, it was sufficient. But if, but as we go through this process, if they're willing to make these changes and, and you know, you pick up that EBITDA value, you're, and now it's a multiple, you know, anywhere yeah. from, you know, four and a half to 10, per, 10 Correct. times, 10 right? Times. Depending yeah. on the business, right? Yeah. Which is a huge yeah. valuation difference. Yeah, because for every $1, to your point, you, you, that's equal to four to 10 or, or more, right, right dollars in, in valuation terms. Right. And it's, again, I mean, it's really just how you're making those measurements. Right. And so the reason I, I look at it this way is that over the years, I've done a lot of work for GE that's kind of has a new configuration now and, and CIT commercial finance, but they often financed turnarounds for investors or for other companies. And so a, a good example is the uh, corrugated box manufacturing yes. business, right? Yes. For a while it got in trouble um, because cost of pulp went up. And so if you weren't running optimally and efficiently, um, you, you, you know, profitability yeah, dissipated yeah. and, and yeah. so, but if you're buying the business and now you're trying to justify to an investor group or to a bank that um, it's a turnaround. Yeah, it was losing money before, but now we fixed it, right? Yes. So then the question is, what did you fix? How did you fix it? How yes. do I, how do we track it? How did you effectuate all this, right? And so a lot of what we would spend time doing is building a financial bridge, which is mm -hmm. here's the 10 things that they're doing differently. Here's the financial impact of each of those. Here's the timing to expect those, right? Mm -hmm. Q1, Q2. Mm -hmm. And here's the activities and costs associated with that so that you could really support that new EBITDA value, right? To help support the Correct. financing for it. Correct. Because in a due diligence process, an investor can look at those numbers and say, well, gosh, they were, they were at a, sometimes at a loss right. and, and now they're, they're, they're a positive by $7 million. 
and, and the narrative that you attach to those numbers is crucial to the process. Otherwise, that jumps appears to be at least on paper, right? Because yep. it's it's one dimension there. But that narrative brings in that second dimension that helps investors identify with, okay, this is this is the story. This is what happened. And to your point, these are the 10 things that were happening. This is what we changed. And now this is the results right. of those changes. And so going forward, the perception of continu continuity is there, which mm -hmm. minimizes the perception of risk from the investor, which helps improve the valuation right. and the deal terms, right? So just to give you one crazy story, there okay. was a $400 million <laughs> grocery chain up in Northern California, okay. Hispanic grocery chain. And he ran a fabulous business, but the one thing he did wrong, and it was kind of when they anticipated uh, uh, kind of converting a lot of folks that were you know, undocumented to mm -hmm. documented, mm -hmm. and it was in a community where they was a sanctuary city, right? Yes. But out of 3,600 employees, 3,100 were undocumented. Wow. And so unfortunately, we had to lay off 3,100 employees and replace wow. them in a six-month period and reset the business, right? So how do you, how do you, how do yeah. you, you know? Like, how do you do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> without, one, without, without, you know, without damaging the business, it, right? yeah, without breaking it. Yeah, so, you know, we, we go through this process and we have to demonstrate that mm -hmm. we're training people, bringing them in, bringing in experienced people. But then how do you build the bridge from the way the company used to be run and was very profitable to where you think it's gonna be now going forward, right? And it's the same thing as we work through the detail and, and, you know, in other situations, that entrepreneur may have ended up with nothing. But mm -hmm. we were able to basically, in, in restructuring the business and recapitalizing it, he was able, still able to retain 50% of the business oh, ownership, yeah. right? Yeah. Brought in a new financial partner, and, you know, they understood what we had done. They, had, mm. they were stressed investors of sorts, right. but they recognized that, okay, this does make sense, we, and we'll let him basically drive it the way he did before, Correct. right? So there's, you, you never know what's going to happen. Right? Yeah. In, in a business. And, what's, and what we've seen recently is two things. One is the price of steel popped up. And it popped up okay. about four years ago, yes. I think, as you recall. And it really impacted. There was a, a, a rebar fabrication business that yeah. was very large yes, in Northern California. One, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it really hit them. It caught them by surprise. They got caught mm -hmm. short and they were having to buy, you know, they had long contracts mm -hmm. and short pricing on steel. And so they were having to pay more than they really ever expected. Yeah. The same thing happened with the uh, paper pulp industry. Yeah. And, and so people that were making paper products, that pulp that was coming from overseas, suddenly it spiked uh, and, and, you know, and, and they were impacted by it. And most recently, the steel prices have gone up and it's impacted a lot of auto parts manufacturers. We just worked on one recently. And what's, what happens is, is that price of uh, the raw commodity goes up. They're slow to raise their prices. And when they do raise prices, they don't get the full effect of what they thought they were going to get from the price increases, yeah. right? And so is it, well, I think it's Warren Buffett that often says, you know, when the water recedes and you find out who's naked, right? <laughs> so it's, it's when you have that significant change. It may have nothing to do with how you've run the business yeah. and have run a good business, but something changes, in, you know, from yeah. an economic standpoint. Correct. Right? And, and, and you may not have control over it. And it's a one-time thing. And that's where we've been able to really help a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. is it being able to explain that, being able to make the adjustments for it. And not only performing at where they were before, but performing better than they were before. Correct. Because for a lot of family-owned businesses, I see this pretty regularly, is that, let's say it's just uh, for a round number, $100 million business. Okay. And they're running at, you know, somewhere between 7 and 10% EBITDA. And, okay. and that's fine for them because yes. it generates nice cash for the family. Everything's fine. You don't have to yeah. fight too many battles. <laughs> but now if, you, if something happens, uh, right. and that's frequently we get called in by the lender, hey, help these guys because they're a good company, they're good people, mm -hmm. but we, they need to be able to show how and demonstrate how they're going to get back to profitability and, and be able to service the debt. And so that, that happens on a pretty regular basis where 
there's a surprise uh, of that kind. And, and then we go in there and we, we sit down with them. It's the same discussion we just had before about the multiplier effect, right? Yes. Because if you're going to try and create legacy value for your family, don't think in terms of 10% EBITDA. If, if your peers in the industry are somewhere between 15 and 20%, think in terms of that. And how do you get there, right? Yeah, because on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, that's you know the, the market's going to study that. They're going to know that. Mm -hmm. And if you're below your peers, you know the perception is that something is wrong in that business. Right. And, and at times, that something wrong or the, multiple things wrong with that business can be the opportunity but it's who's going to take right. that opportunity. If they work with somebody like you up front, then that opportunity for, is for them to increase their valuation. Yep. Where on, if they weren't prepared, an investor will come in and make those changes and ultimately impact that valuation in a positive way, but who right. wins in that situation? Right. So this is the nugget of information that entrepreneurs need to pay attention to because if they are not thinking this way, if they're mm -hmm. not hiring firms like yourself, to prepare them, their companies for some sort of capital event, mm -hmm. then at that point, you know, they're not, they're leaving money on the table is how I like to, yeah. to illustrate it. Yeah, I think the, the term that we use is reverse diligence. So we're yeah. basically coming in and helping the company prepare for yeah. a diligence. And it's hard for people to justify that sometimes um, because it's kind of, I, I got to pay for you to come in and help me prepare for diligence so I can have some, pay somebody else to come in and do diligence, right? <laughs> And when it's a distress situation, it almost have no choice because we're, we're having to go in there and help explain the story. Yes. We become part of sitting with management shoulder to shoulder and saying, mm -hmm. look, here's what happened to the business. Here's what they've done to fix the business. And here's how they're going to get to profitability and, and to these targets, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's hard for them sometimes to kind of they're, – they're willing to do it, but it's hard for them to articulate – that, that story. Correct. The other thing that we find is that you know, if I walk into a business um, and if it's a corporatized business, let's say, and it, you know, you've got an owner and an investors, I can walk through and I can, I can figure out, okay, here's a lot of things that aren't working, right? Mm. Lack of efficiencies in the mm -hmm. process flow, too much labor. Uh, the reporting isn't up to snuff in terms of being mm -hmm. able to evaluate your operations, yes. right? And, and I've done this in like in the food industry and some others where I, I can go through and identify a lot of fixes that would help drive profitability. Yeah. If I do that in a family-owned business, I've just offended half the family, right? <laughs> I offended the, the accountant that's you know in the Correct. family. I've offended the guy who's doing floor production. I've yes. offended the guy in, who's doing distribution, right? Yes. And, and so it's, it's a very different approach with a family-owned business than it is with a kind of an investor-owned yes. corporate type business. Yeah, absolutely. I see it, and we see it ourselves, right, where you go into these businesses and they've been run a certain way. I think the word that comes to mind is content. You know, these families grow content with the profitability mm -hmm. of the business, the performance yep. of the company. But there are times where there, there's internal and external impactors of mm -hmm. the business. In, in the scenarios and case studies you shared, there was pulp, there was metal, or steel specifically, right? Mm -hmm. There's always these, these uh, forces that are, to the, the comment that you made earlier, it's when the water recedes, that's that's when you know Warren Buffett said this is when you know people who are naked are exposed, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but the the key to these case studies that you're sharing, there's hope, mm -hmm. and the uh, negative information is that there is a fix. Yep. So if if a business is in the situation where you know in the interim it's distress, but you could come in, you can make those appropriate measurements, and you can right size if it's if your commodity is still and you're buying that still on a spot market, you're very vulnerable to your margins shrinking in that. Mm -hmm. and, and on the flip side, they could be, have the opportunity to have higher margins, but 
you know, then you're running a business that you just can't predict. Right. So, you know, I would imagine you would go into a company like that and you would say, okay, well, let's try, let's work with your vendors. Let's get, you know, let's buy on futures or let's get fixed pricing and our contract pricing for a period of time so that then they in turn can go to their customers and say, okay, mm -hmm. here's our pricing for the next three months right. or six months or whatever duration that is. And then they can predict their business better than they were before. Mm -hmm. And they would not discover this or learn this unless they had someone like yourself come in to help right. identify those points and then make those those tweaks and changes. Yeah, and the key is to do it before the commodity spikes because <laughs> when yeah. you you know when steel spiked recently, it was very hard to even buy steel, right? Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to negotiate pricing yeah. for steel and and or delivery for steel. Yeah. If but there's times when, you know, the pricing's off on steel. Mm -hmm. That's the time to negotiate, go ahead and negotiate a contract That's right, right. For, long, for longer term value. Yeah, we, we, we right. too were working on a food and beverage uh, project a couple of years ago. And at that time in the supply chain, there was bottles, but no caps, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you, you, you can't sell your product without the cap. You could have all the yeah. bottles in the world, which they, they had, a, they had a, a two year supply of bottles, but no caps. So what they ended up having to do is go buy new bottles that had caps that fit to solve their problem. But to your point, if you're solving that problem after that shift has been made, you're in, you're in trouble. Your margins are in trouble, and let's hope that the business can sur survive that experience. But right. sometimes, you know, they don't. But um, or or they have to come to a situation where they're making decisions that they don't want to be making, right? Especially when there's family in the business and there's cuts to be made. Yeah, that's not an easy conversation. And I could see exactly how you don't make friends with all the family members, you know, when you're coming in and you're making these tweaks, because it's really mm -hmm. providing them accountability or accountability tools to go in there and, and tweak and improve the business. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, um, that's probably a whole episode in itself, right? The, the oh, culture oh, yeah. of the organization yeah. and, and, and how people react in it, uh, to changes like this. Oh, no, I, if, there's a lot of stories, <laughs> but one, one of the other things I think it's important to highlight is uh, working capital. Mm -hmm. That's where I see a lot of people getting surprised at the end. You know, uh, there's the transactions closing. Yeah. Now it's kind of like, uh, well, you know what? Uh, there's some seasonality to this. Yeah. There's uh, if we're going to grow, you know, it's going to take more working capital. And frequently entrepreneurs don't don't think in those terms, right? Correct. Correct. Um, and and that that's an important uh, consideration. That's really why. Like when we're asked to go in and do diligence, we're asked to look at period to period to period mm -hmm. and month by month by month, not, yes. not year to year, yes. and to go back three or four years. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, then you can really see the seasonality of what's going on. You can see what happens in a December yes. to, to February time period. You can see that maybe during the you know summer rush, there's a, a buildup of, of cost and capital mm -hmm. and inventory and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's also an opportunity in that a lot of businesses are run fat, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the thinking is, I, I'll just keep more inventory. I'll keep more raw materials because it's a safety net. But what you're doing though, is that you're tying up working capital you yes. don't need to, right? And that's an opportunity as well as is to make improvements on that. The reason, um, and I bring this up because it's so important that people just don't get it sometimes is looking at very detailed financials, not the summary level, but the, the line item by line mm -hmm. item detail, the trial at a trial balance Correct. level, right? And not only looking at it from a uh, on the financial side, but also the operating side. Hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're a, a you know a manufacturer. It could be a distribution business or a lot yeah. of other issues. But what drives you know the operating elements, right? And looking at that, and and the simple answer. And I, when I do a, a kind of a triage approach on the, on companies, I'm going back and looking at the historical. I look at when the company's most profitable. That's just the simple triage way mm -hmm. to say, 
here's what the ratios kind of should be yeah. to get back to that profitability. Longer term, you know, I want to be able to look at every revenue line item, every expense line item, and strategically look at those costs and what they should be, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in the short term, if you look at when the company's most profitable, it usually happens because you're pushing through as much volume as possible, but you didn't have the opportunity to build the cost up yet, Correct. right? And you, you know that, so it's, it, maybe it's a little bit too optimal sometimes, mm-hmm. but at least it gives you some sense of targets of where you yeah. should be. The other thing I think um, people miss on, on financials is that, um, you know, when things are going fine, you don't worry about them. But when they're not, you need something to give you a heads up. And so looking at uh, revenue per employee, looking at uh, labor costs per unit built, mm-hmm. and even if, it's, even if you're preparing and manufacturing a diverse set of products, at least it gives you an average. And you can see that my labor costs are going up, and I'm not sure yeah. why. And one of the things that, on the labor side that's happened recently, and people really haven't focused on it as much as they should, is that, wow, it's hard to get employees, number one. So I don't want to offend them. Correct. Number two is I'm going to use more temp labor because it gives me more flexibility, right? Yeah. At greater cost, right? At at greater cost. Yeah. But but what happens, those temporary employees begin to get treated like permanent employees. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I've seen recently that um, needed to get fixed and they didn't realize how much of a problem it was, was, well, we're going to tell the employees we're going to give them 50 hours a week. Hmm. And then what happens is 50 hours a week becomes standard, but the production levels shift on you, right? Yeah. So production comes down, but they're still expecting yeah. to get 50 hours a week. Yeah. And, you know, the good news is these are employees that want to work the time and, yes. and be there. Yeah. The bad news is you got to adjust <laughs> your volumes, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when, when times are good, you don't worry about it as much. When times are a little bit tougher and there's flux in the economy, you really have to look at, you know, the production planning yeah. elements, right? Yeah. And what I've noticed with a lot of companies, too, is that uh, as they grow and closely held businesses frequently don't focus on kind of that cost accounting element mm-hmm. and that they can get caught with a lot of surprises as, yeah. they, as they grow. You know, pricing shifts, customer yeah. buying patterns shift, and they didn't realize it. And suddenly all the, the cheaper products with low margin are being sold and the good stuff is, yeah. you know, got shifted out, right? right? And, and the other thing I've seen, too, is that when companies get in trouble, what's the first thing they cut? Administrative costs. They start cutting accountants. They cut out the, the cost account. Now they ha- they're going blind, right? Correct. And that's they the are. biggest issue I find with companies is that looking at the gross margin. The cost structure, you know, I can compare that against historical and say, okay, mm-hmm. it's gone too high mm-hmm. and we can fix that quickly. What's hard for people to understand frequently is the gross margin analysis. And what are the pieces of it? And how do you go about fixing that gross margin, yes. right? Yeah. And, and that's where you really have to look at all the financial elements and your operating costs and the operating detail and the operating statistics to be able to figure yeah. that out. George, thank you for coming in and spending time with us here today, talking through these case studies and the stories. I'd love to have you on in the future. And there's so much more we could talk about. We could probably sit here for hours and hours and talk about different case studies and experiences that we've had. Yeah. But thank you for being here, George. No, it's terrific. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, thank and one of the things I want to be able to say about you, you and your firm is that you're unusual from an investment banker standpoint. You're actually trying to help the company. You advise them. You spend a lot of time that you know wouldn't normally most investment bankers wouldn't do. And that's the thing I find you know very important because most people are very transactional in your world. Mm-hmm. To actually have somebody thinking through how you help them drive their value is very different. And that's, and that's the whole purpose of this of this podcast is really to educate folks and promote thought in them so that they can make those moves, right? Otherwise, you know, they're sitting there, you know, not knowing what to do when it comes to that time that they have to exit. There's not much that can be done at that point in time, or there won't be at least enough runway to correct everything. So thank you again for being here, and thank you for joining another episode of Private Capital Mastery. I'm Brian Franco, your host. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week as we unpack more and more details 
about the private capital markets. If you have any questions at all or would like to be in, put in touch with George, feel free to email us at info at meritage-partners.com and we'll be happy to connect the dots. Until then, have a great week and we'll see you soon.